Also, I don't think we're really just talking about skills. I think we're talking about a culture. Mm -hmm. you know, scientific culture is about questioning the data and being skeptical. And this is, I just don't think this is something you can learn from, you know, from a textbook or even necessarily from, you know, a YouTube tutorial. It's, it's something that you need to, it needs to be imparted to you by someone who, who represents that culture. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it, it, there is a really strong cultural aspect to this that I think people miss sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not something that uh, critical to read. There's been some debates about whether or not, for example, critical thinking can be taught. And I, I don't believe that critical thinking can be taught like in a course type thing, where essentially you lecture people on how to critical think. Because even the fact is, if you take those and apply it, you're not critical thinking, you're just mimicking. Um, mm. And I think that there has to be, I don't know, there's some aspect where it has to be like that dialectic with an experienced, skeptical, scientific thinker. Um, and then you also have to be basically out on your own doing it. You know, you have to be able to survive in the wilderness of science. And it's learning those survival skills and picking yourself up again when you make mistakes that teaches those skill set. Hey, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Martin Goodson, CEO of Evolution AI and author of a recent paper responding to the UK's AI roadmap document in which he brought up some really interesting uh, contrasts and difference in priorities between AI strategies for government versus startups versus uh, academic research institutions. And I thought it'd be great to bring him on to essentially discuss what sort of those competing priorities are. Um, so Martin, welcome. Hi. Hey, and I guess just to start like just to lay the the groundwork some, what was this document to which you're uh, referring to the, uh, the AI roadmap? Yeah, so the AI roadmap was published uh, by the UK government by, um, it was put together in January of 2021, it was put together by an organization called the AI Council, which was a group of people um, who the AI government had asked to help them and support them in their progress towards the, the publication of the, the uh, UK AI national strategy. So the, the main document was the strategy. The roadmap was the planning for the, for, the, for the strategy. The strategy itself actually came out in September of 2021. So the, the roadmap was essentially a precursor. Um, was it meant essentially when it was written, was it meant as a statement of what the strategy would be? Or was essentially was it more like feelers to try to get some feedback before finalizing the strategy? So it was, a, it was a major input to the strategy. Um, definitely, I don't think the idea was that every single idea and the roadmap would go through through into the strategy, but it was one of the main main inputs. Uh, I, I would go as far as to say it was the primary input into the strategy. Cool. And um, just so we get some, an idea, what were sort of the key aspects of the roadmap itself? So the original um, the original document. Um... Yeah. So it covered a lot of ground, and that, that, that's one of the criticisms that we made actually and i should say that that the uh, article that, that um i worked on i i didn't work on that by myself but that that was part of our work as the uh, royal statistical society data science and ai section so so a bunch of people worked on that and, and it was mainly based actually on on a survey that that, that we wrote that that we made um but the what we one of the criticisms that we made of the roadmap is it's just covered too much stuff it, it really covered it was like a it, just, it was such a long list of different topics that it didn't really have a coherent 
core idea at all. So it, it really it went from the skills gap in AI to moonshots. So um, it spoke about things like the digital twin idea, which I'm not even really sure what, what that is in terms of AI. And um, the, the, the idea, was what, what one of the main ideas that they proposed was that the government should sponsor major moonshots. Um, so this is one of the things that we, we criticized it for because what, what, what's the real evidence that, that, that the governments are very good at, at running AI moonshots or that this is the best use of public funds? And, you know, it, it really did cover a lot of ground. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, when I was reading it, I also, it seemed like very broad. Like I, I generally don't like critiquing too many things when the authors aren't around to you know, respond or anything. But in general, I thought that's like, I was trying to read this. It's, I was expecting one thing when it started talking about a roadmap and it seemed like very non-concrete and it just, it was very broad. Um, I also only heard about digital twins for the first time in March of 2021. So that was also another thing. So I guess it is surprising a lot of, um, a lot of people that effectively it's it seems something like a subfield. I, maybe it's not worth going into, but it seemed like it was a subfield that was getting sort of like hoisted up there as, as an integral part of a strategy. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you know about this, uh, that there, there's a researcher in UCLA called Richard Rommelt who researches on, on strategy, uh, and he has this idea that, that many strategy documents just come about from committees who have a lot of stakeholders, essentially just everyone contributing some ideas that they would like to have accomplished. So, so you end up with this long list of, of, of goals, which are not really a coherent plan. And he he says, you know, you you, you don't. This is not a list of a list of tasks. It's just a shopping list. It's, it's not really a strategy. Um, and it, this document had some of the flavor of of that. It, it, it's something that was made by a committee. Yeah. When I uh, think about these things, I think about more like uh, the analogy by way of analogy. It's like mosaicism and entropy, where effectively, like, how much surprise is there in a document given what you just read? And if you go straight from like moonshot to uh, digital twins to um, skills gap and things like that, it's like that's a high entropy document. Um, and effectively, if it doesn't fit together. But um, I guess maybe just to move this on to the uh, so the Royal Statistical Society. Um, the data science and AI section, is that the name of? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, so essentially it's the uh, Royal Statistical Society's equivalent to the statistical learning and data science section of the American Statistical Association. Um, at least I'd like to think so. And uh, basically you surveyed your members, uh, you got a pretty large feedback from them and then of them to review the document. And this review document is essentially the basis of the article that you wrote. Yeah, exactly. We actually had a great response. We, we, you know, we read the roadmap and we thought we really, we need to make a comment on this. Uh, it doesn't seem like the technical community, like the kind of practitioner community, as we call them, you know, the actual data scientists and AI specialists out there building products and services. We didn't think they'd been consulted at all. So we thought, well, we, you know, there's a gap there. And I think we need to fill it. But does anyone really care? Do I, we had a lot, quite a lot of debates in our in our committee meetings. Does any does does the practitioner community really care about this? Um, and we thought, well, let's just survey them and, and, and figure it out. And so we sent the survey out, and we actually we had almost three hundred responses, and really detailed responses. A lot of them from 
quite senior people, a lot of leaders, data science leaders um, in industry. And the response was really amazing, actually. We, we were really, really surprised and we were really happy with, with the response. It was especially the detail, like it, people have some really great ideas out there and we, we, which, were, which we just didn't even think about. So yeah, we were really glad to, to see that. Yeah, just as a quick side note, as someone who has run surveys for professional societies and sections of professional societies, getting response rates in the, in the hundreds and the multi-hundreds is phenomenal. Um, so right. that is a massive success, and especially if they came in in detail. And from reading your response, there was a cohesive detail. Um, is that when you know when it uh, re read some of the quotes, like ah, this is this is written by people who are actually in the trenches doing machine learning AI work. Um, you mentioned the term practitioner. Um, can you tell us what that means to you? So when we talk about practitioners, I mean, it's a kind of a loose term, but, but we are talking about people who are doing data science or, or AI, machine learning. They, they may be doing research, but they're not necessarily working in, in, an, in a university, probably working in, in industry. So people who are actually building, we're really concentrating on people who are building things. So the people who are building products, building services, many of them will be working in startups, but we're not we're we're not really talking about those people who are working in, in university in universities as researchers because uh, we think that, that those people are really well represented already and you know most government policy work seems to concentrate on universities maybe just because they have really good links or maybe because in other industries universities are who you should speak to you should really speak to you know professors in universities if you want to talk about cutting edge you know early stage drug development or, or life science research, maybe, I, I don't know, but, but, but in AI, I, do, I don't think it's right. I think that the practitioners, the people in industry, people in the startups are, are really driving. I mean, the whole data science thing, which started 10 years ago, I think was really driven by industry. It wasn't driven by universities. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that, um, especially sort of the the definition of data science has become essentially, well, essentially, I, I, to me, it feels like something where industry needed to come up with a name for the skill set that they needed. And the reason that data science becomes a little bit of a nebulous term is because essentially there's a great diversity in the skill sets that they need. But it's essentially saying, like, we need someone who's not quite a statistician, who's not quite an engineer, um, but effectively has this right combination of skills. Um, if you don't mind me asking, just to circle back, um, you mentioned that uh, practitioners mean people not effectively in academic research institutions because, you know, there are plenty of academics who are building things. Um, and I like your example of the life sciences. You know, uh, we need cutting edge information, for example, from someone like Andrew Pollard at Oxford University. Um, there isn't like a an Andrew Pollard and then there's a practitioner of what he does. It's effectively his research is the cutting edge thing. And Presumably, he works with industry and it gets it, you know, delivered to create, for example, the Chadox vaccine. Um, whereas in data science, machine learning, AI, uh, we have the people building models, particularly like heavily in uh, academia. And then there's, as you said, the people building things um, who that's essentially their entire focus. What would sort of differentiate a very applied uh, researcher in academia from somebody who is, say, building something in a startup? um yeah nothing <laughs> yeah you're right yeah i think there are many people 
who have that 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 i mean they're not really they're doing something they use they're applying algorithms they may be doing research in order to build uh you know better algorithms for their products but they're not necessarily publishing on those algorithms they're, do, they're doing something quite different to, to what most people think of as a university machine learning researcher which mm -hmm. is you're, you know their goal is to publish papers yeah yeah I, and I, I think that is actually one very important thing just you know the time that goes into publication for example um where effectively if a a practitioner doesn't is not putting the time to that you know that that is as far as how they allocate their time and what they have time to do i think that's an important issue Hey folks, we're a few minutes into the show. This is usually the part where the podcaster talks about their sponsor or something. I'm not gonna do that, but I will ask two things. One, if you leave a like or a dislike based on your preference, and also let me know what you think about this topic and also what topics you like discussed on future episodes of the show. That's it, enjoy the episode. Um, you're CEO of, of an AI startup. What are the priorities of, um, of, of essentially a startup or these practitioners? What, what are they trying to do? What are yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Okay, so most of the time, in, in this context, I, I think what we're trying to do is build really accurate models that have the performance characteristics that are appropriate to the to the use case. So, in many cases, in in, in my case, for example, um, we're really interested in computer vision models which can work very fast. They, they need to be very accurate, but they also need to work very, very fast. So, so we, most of our work is extracting data from, from documents, images of documents like PDFs or scanned images of documents. And we're doing, we're extracting from about 1.5 million pages a, a day. So we really need high performance methods. So, 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 you know, that's a very, you could, maybe that's quite a niche re requirement, but, but in most cases, uh, machine learning engineers and researchers in industry are, are, are trying to build models that are very high performance, have good accuracy, uh, work under the computational constraints that you've got. You, you might need to have something that works in 100 milliseconds or, or whatever, whatever it is. Um, but also, there's a there's a kind of there's a whole other side of the characteristics that are needed, um, which are I don't know. Maybe I just call them under the, the umbrella term of, of trust related characteristics. So for many use cases, not, not so much in our particular use case, but in, in many use cases, you really need to prove that your algorithms, are, you know, have the fairness characteristics that you're interested in as, as well. Yeah. And on top of that, do you need to add the fact that people will have to buy these algorithms or does anyone effectively buy an algorithm or do they pay for a service that is essentially powered by an AI algorithm? What there's a, obviously a commercial bit to this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Hopefully, hopefully the reason why you're, you're, um, you're building these algorithms is that you have products of some kind that mm -hmm. you want to, that, that you want to solve some kind of business problem. Yeah. And I, if you don't wouldn't mind, could we sort of dig into that a bit? Because I think that is a massive difference between, for example, like, uh, technical publications, academic research, or effectively you're looking at the performance of these things and, you know, performance metrics can be the end all, or if you're really fancy, you can do interpretability without losing performance. Um, 
But for the practitioner, you know, the, it doesn't end with just saying, oh, I have this thing that performs well. It needs to essentially fit into a greater ecosystem, like a software ecosystem. And that software is what's being sold. I don't think I understand the question. Oh, it's like, is, is, that, is that an accurate representation where effectively there's this facet for practitioners where they need to effectively fit in with a, a greater technical ecosystem like the software that is powered by their AI? with the customer feedback and things like that. And okay. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good, that's a good way of representing things. They're not, the algorithm is not existing in isolation. Mm -hmm. It's, it has lots of different touch points with other software systems and also human based systems, business systems. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind me asking, since you're a startup CEO, does it differ? Uh, so, for example, like compare the work that you have to focus on versus someone like uh, Jim Weatherall, um, you know, who's part of a like large, well-established company. Do the practitioner priorities change between those two things, or is there that much of a much of a difference? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, we're a much smaller organization than AstraZeneca. Yeah. Um, However, most of our customers are quite large organizations. Mm -hmm. So, so we are, we do work with banks and other large organizations, which are probably, you know, comparable in, in size to, to a company like AstraZeneca. So we, in the end, we do, you know, I do find myself having conversations with lawyers, internal lawyers and ethics advisors, AI ethics advisors, um, and other people within the larger organizations, um, in order to make sure that that we are working under the constraints that they've set for for um for governance so i, I think in that respect in some, some sometimes i do but you know part of my job probably is a little bit similar to what to someone's job working in a larger organization but much of it is very different because the products that we're building we're building really in isolation. I mean, we're, we're building it. It obviously needs to, needs to work and the customers need to be happy, but most customers don't really get a say in what kind of algorithms we're using, what our R and D methodologies are or, or anything like that. We, we get to choose that ourselves. So I, I hope, I mean, the idea is that a startup can move a bit faster than a large organization because of that. Cool. And, um, so far, because I'm just trying to get a really good idea about what it means to be a machine learning practitioner, because that's obviously the thing that this AI roadmap in your commentary is differentiating itself from. Um, have I forgotten to ask anything so far? Like, is there any key point that I've missed out on? Um, oh, oh, you mean on on, the key, on key points on what a machine learning practitioner consists of? What a machine learning yeah, yeah, person. just any in, in yeah. like sort of key ideas around that that I've missed out on so far. Um, not really. Uh, the only thing is that we uh, we're definitely not re just representing machine learning people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we are representing data scientists who might have a different slant on on what they're interested in. Then there are definitely data scientists who are more in, more on the statistical side, mm -hmm. or maybe uh, are not as involved in in machine learning research or machine learning products, for example. However, they're still practitioners. We still include them in the in the umbrella term of a practitioner. All right, cool. So uh, now back to the um, AI roadmap. What were the things that, for example, an AI practitioner would have liked to see in the AI roadmap? Um, yeah, let's start with that, and then I'd also like to ask, you know, as sort of like a startup CEO, because those are two different hats. 
um, what they should have seen in the roadmap. But let's just start with the AI practitioner. What would the AI practitioner want to see in this roadmap? So I think there are the two or three, three things that really, really stuck out. The, the, the biggest, um, the, the topic that was talked about the most by far, actually, but by far, was the improvements to the interface between academia and industry, especially startups. So that was the first thing that, that many, many people spoke about. Um, the second thing, and the, and the third thing were probably about, about equal. The second thing would be support for open source and training in open source technology. And then the third thing would be funding for startups. Uh, a lot of people spoke about access to computational resources as well, which is under the same topic. Cool. So on that first topic, the um, access and interface to academic resources, um, I guess resources by which I mean people and their knowledge. Um, but yeah, basically, <laughs> um, what what were they wanting to see? Like, is it essentially the disconnect between the algorithms and methods and models that are being developed in academia versus what's actually needed in the real world? Is it essentially like bridging that gap or debugging help? What what are people looking for? Yeah, good. it's a good, really good question. So there are lots of different things. So one thing that um, many people spoke about was, was what you just said, that there seems to be a disconnect between what academia is producing and what the industry really needs. Um, so people were really speaking about, you know, they were, they were talking about the interface between academia and, and industry, but they weren't really talking about knowledge. And lots of people spoke about knowledge, knowledge sharing, but not, not necessarily just in one direction. We assumed that we'd be talking about sharing knowledge from universities to, to industry, but actually just as many people were talking about sharing knowledge in the opposite direction. Um, and that's partly because they wanted to make sure that academia, people working in academia, understand what the problems are that industry care about. Um, so lots of ideas around feeding back use case, information about use cases back to academia in order that they were, were, were focused on the right problems. But also skills, and um, that's another thing that, that came out that uh, the, uh, the the impression that, that people have is that academics are not necessarily uh, familiar with the modern software engineering skills, skill set. Um, but also, so that's those two things. One is feeding back use cases from industry. The second is feeding back uh, skills from industry back into academia. But then the third thing is definitely probably what we what we all expect, which is that industry really expects to be gaining access to cutting edge ideas, techniques, methods from academia. And that, you know, I would, would summarize by saying that 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 people think that that is broken. It, it doesn't seem to be working very well, um, and it wasn't covered at all in the roadmap, um, and it's not necessarily covered really at all well in the in the national strategy now that's published either which is which is really odd um and to go back to the the idea that you know a strategy needs to be more than a than a list of um just a list of goals or objectives and richard rommel's work he 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 says that the first thing you should do is figure out what the obstacles are and then figure out how you resolve those obstacles. That's, that's what the strategy should be. The strategy should be a coherent plan for surmounting those obstacles. So the first thing is to figure out what the obstacles are. What I, it feels from our survey that 
a major obstacle that people feel in the industry is that this interface is not working very well. Um, and, I, and I think one of our major criticisms of both the roadmap and the strategy is that they're not really doing anything or they don't doesn't seem to be any ideas there for fixing this, which is a real shame because the UK has got great, you know, great research in universities, great machine learning researchers. It has some really great engineers working in startups. And there's great potential in the UK for, uh, for, for an AI industry to develop. It hasn't really developed yet. And I think there are some doubts about whether it's going to develop because, and, and, and unless we can get that interface right, I, I think that we're going to struggle. Yeah, um, just correcting from was like the exact quotes from like, if you have not enumerated the hurdles, you do not have a strategy, Some, something like that, where effectively. I don't know the exact, yeah. I can't remember the yeah. exact quotes, but it's not that, that's a paraphrase, but yeah, it's a good yeah, paraphrase. Yeah. yeah, it was just basically like, you have to know those hurdles. And like, I have to say, thematically, this does connect very much with essentially the paper that you wrote in the feedback, because effectively, what I saw in the problems that you're talking about was like essentially like problem solution. So like the prob problem oriented and well, effectively like you're trying to debug the system. Um, and I guess so, it's like an engineering type of approach. Yeah. And actually on engineering, uh, so you mentioned several important things. Um, one effectively like in academic training, uh, where a lot of, uh, people in the machine learning, data science, AI, you know, these quantitative fields, they will become good at a certain aspect of quantitative research. Uh, but for example, the software engineering skills that are increasingly needed. Um, and you know, it's not like you need to be an expert software engineer, but you need to know how to function within around software engineers and some of these best practices and principles. Um, that that's a key step that is missed a lot of the time. So for example, I was uh, interviewing Charlotte Dean a little while ago and her episode's probably gonna come out a week or two before this one does. But you know, she's talking about how she brought on software engineers into our group uh, to essentially handle a lot of that stuff. And that, that's really good to essentially make sure that that interface and the output does work well with essentially the software engineering principles of people in industry who might be using it. Um, and just as a quick side note, you know, for my own work, like coming out of uh, DFIL and um, I had like the data analysis skills far more than I would need for essentially the job or effectively your, your skills of data analysis typically will exceed, uh, the challenges of the actual applied topic, mm -hmm. but you might lack the engineering skills to actually make the most of all that. And so effectively one of my biggest like hitting wall instances was like, okay, what are the data engineering skills that I need just to get things working? What are mm -hmm. sort of the software and the, the code reviews and types of those things? Um, so I can function with another team because effectively academia is good for being a hermit in many ways. Um, but when you need to interface with a lot of other people, um, that is a challenge. And I don't want to paint all academic groups like that because one, that's a broad brush and be inaccurate. Two, some academic groups really address that and have big success, but it seems like it's, uh, not the case when you're hiring, um, people, for example, straight off school, cause I think this might address the question very directly. Do you find that like a lack of these engineering skills or sort of the peripheral skills to just raw data analysis. Are those lacking in people? Is that something they need to pick up when they join a company? So we, 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 we always have a programming task now as part of our interview process. We, did, we didn't used to, but we, we found that we had to do that. Um, and this is because 
there are many people who are they may be really good at machine learning may be really good at research but they just cannot program or they don't they just don't program very well um they just can't structure code in a in a in a in a good way and, and uh it, it doesn't seem to come naturally to them so so we we have a test now um which is always always we always have to have the programming test where we ask someone to to write some code for us and that's a great I, th I think that's just an essential thing that we need to do um so we don't have problems with hiring people who can't code well now that that just doesn't happen i i would say that i've worked with people coming from a computer computer science background i mean most people in data science at least originally before there were data science programs for you know msc programs they either came from a machine learning background or they came from a statistics or science background empirical science background and what we found with people who came from a computer science background is that they often didn't have obviously they could program so that, that those skills weren't, weren't at issue but it was basic i would call them basic scientific skills scientific um the scientific method you know formulating hypotheses and testing the hypothesis reporting results reporting data these are the skills that i, I found are often quite lacking in, in computer scientists. And I, I think there is just a different tradition and culture there that, you know, all of these things would be, you know, how do you, how do you use a scatter block to, to represent data, which is comes naturally to obviously to all statisticians and to very many, or no, I will say all empirical scientists, you know, any physicist or biologist would be taught these things in their first year. Um, and yet I've worked with people with PhDs in machine learning who didn't know how to make a scatter plot, a good scatter plot, um, and didn't know how to represent data and didn't really know how to test a hypothesis. So I think those are the skills that I would really like to see being, being taught a, a bit more. Yeah. On that note, cause you know, like people, when you talk about, uh, essentially scientific reasoning, the critical reasoning of scientific processes, for example, um, I think that it's non-trivial, you know, th this is a skill that's built with experience um, and essentially a good intuition for how things go wrong in scientific processes. And my sort of, I don't know, you can just call it a quick uh, napkin approximation or sort of like off the wall theory on this is that basically, I think that uh, when programs overemphasize a lot of the deductive aspects of their field. So for example, in computer science, you have a lot of mathematics, which is a deductive form of reasoning, and you can become extremely good at deductive forms of reasoning. Um, without actually figuring out the inductive aspects of reasoning, which are key to science. Um, so effectively, mm -hmm. um, I think statistics uh, in all these academic fields have a place where essentially someone can be totally focused on the deductive or mathematical aspects alone of their field um, and make a lot of progress and never get around to actually trying to reason about real world properties and real world um, things. Cause like the, the inductive aspect, well, it's just for those who are only, who have only listened to like one episode of mine or zero, um, you know, the deductive means that if your assumptions are true, you can work through and you come out to a correct conclusion. Whereas inductively it's, you know, this observational aspect and it's reliant on those observations being generated by the same process and that process not changing and how you can be fooled by it. So one way, this inductive and the scientific aspect, you can always be wrong, you can always be fooled. And this is something that even bothered, you know, David Hume. But I, anyway, getting back to this academic versus practitioner issue, 
I think that part of this, I think that at least some kernel of it has to do with the fact that academia allows you to essentially focus on, it can, it can allow you to specialize in this one aspect. It may, might even prize that one aspect, like uh, consider a statistics course where you can't get through without mathematical statistics. Mm. But you could probably get through without, you know, statistical, like scientific reasoning. Um, mm -hmm. anyway, so I, I thought, I, th I think that's really interesting that you're bringing that bit up. If you don't mind me asking one more time, uh, just to reiterate this, cause this is super interesting what you said. Um, when you say that someone can do machine learning, but they can't code, um, can you go through what that means? So can't code well, cause effectively like you can't implement a machine learning model without coding. Are you talking about like structure, the logic behind it? Um, yeah, parsimony, I mean, what is it? You're right. You can't you can't implement a machine learning model without without coding, but you can definitely implement a machine learning model without coding well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. Yeah, I think you know I I think this kind of, you know in the early days of of data science, let's say when did data science start? Kind of about 10, 12 years ago. Um, in the early days, there was this idea that you had data scientists who would just be the scientist and would be doing research and they would be producing some prototype models that engineers would then turn into uh, something that could actually be used in a product or service. Uh, that that idea just didn't work very well at all. And people have, I, th I think, unanimously agreed that that was a bad idea. And, and so, so now most people that I, I know, um, the people developing the models are also developing the production code. Um, I think the reason why, by the way, that, that it didn't work very well is that very often something was lost when the prototype model was given to the engineers um, and it just when it was turned into a production system it, you know maybe it worked really maybe it was really fast and it was really performant but it didn't actually do the same thing that it did when in the hands of the of the original researcher it didn't have the same performance or there's some edge cases that were missed or, or something like that um so now i you know i think people have got the idea that okay so so actually the person making the production code or at least involved in making the production code has to be the original researcher, which means that we need to now be making production code. Now, writing production code uh, with everything that goes along with that, um, that you know, there's a, a very well-established toolbox of techniques like exception handling, use of assertions, the way that we structure code, the way that we name, you know, the way that we name functions or variables is really important. That's something that 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 people writing production code really care about. What what do you, what what's the name of your function going to be? How do we make sure there's a proper separation of concerns, and uh, and how do we make sure that the functions are are, are coherent and and um, make logical sense together? Loads of those things I think uh, can be missing from from research based code. And you know, I you I, I used to be a researcher, and my code. Well, you know, it wasn't very good. I mean, it was fine for the for those purposes of writing f quick scripts to test ideas. And really, if you're testing scripts, there is an argument. If you're writing code just for testing ideas, then that, that, then there's an argument that you don't really need to write production quality code. And I think that's that's probably right. But I think there is a middle ground because I think I think well, at least I used to think you know you write a a piece of code a script to test some some idea uh it's just a one-off you're never going to use it again that's a totally different thing to writing production code that's going to be used every day however it's not really true i think i think it's a bit of a myth because in reality you are going to be running that piece of code very many times you're going to be making modifications and you're going to need to compare one version of an algorithm with a slight tweak of that same algorithm and in the end you are writing something that's going to be used at least 
in your research process as a almost like a production system because you're you're gonna you need it to be stable and you need it to be re reproducible so i think that, that even even if you're only writing research code you do really need to be writing something which is approaching production level quality but definitely the way that we work is that all scientists will be writing the production code that's actually used in the product as well um yeah i have two questions about this one uh do you think there's a way that we could essentially Production code does can make you more productive, even for academic research. Although you know you essentially lose out on that ability to quickly, you know, write something up in MATLAB, test an idea. Um, do you think one of the ways to incentivize this is essentially to, um, well, essentially try to create a, a when it, whenever you want a system to change, you have to figure out some way to incentivize it in some way. And so, effectively, do you think that? convincing academics that production code will actually make them more academically productive is useful. Um, and is that sufficient to make them want to overcome those barriers? Well, I think having to publish the code itself is probably a good, mm -hmm. a good way of incentivizing people as well. Mm -hmm. if, yeah. if people are forced to, to publish the code in order to publish the, uh, 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 a paper, then I think that's the ultimate, um, encouragement. But, but I do think that, you, I do think that you're right that 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 if people in you know, working in research were delivering code of production quality, that their research would just go faster. But that's the kind of getting people to eat their vitamins type of uh, approach, which you know, eat their vegetables and, and take their vitamin pills. I'm not really mm -hmm. sure whether that's that's going to be really that effective because it's always easier to just do something quick and dirty. Mm -hmm. Actually, even on that note, uh, the like eating your vitamins versus like, I don't know, I just swallowed my vitamin and try not to think about it. But, uh, you know, maybe it is that thing, like we're telling people to chew their vitamins as opposed to like, no, you're supposed to take this with water. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what do you think? So like you've described, you know, everyone wants a data scientist or machine learning person with the data analysis skills. And now essentially we've also described that, and I think very reasonably, that these people need to also have, you know, production code writing ability. Um, where is the place do you think is to learn that? Is it like entirely in school before they come out? Or is it like we need to get them 50% of the way there so then they can learn the rest in industry? Where should that sort of, where should the production code knowledge begin? That's a good and question. Then, yeah, I think, you know, I think things like there are, there are, there are, I mean, there are skills like you need to know these days, you need to know how to use Git, right? But, but I wouldn't think that learning how to use Git would be something that you should cover in an academic course necessarily. I mean, it can, it can be, and I think it's fine if it is, but I, I, I like to think of academic courses as giving you knowledge, which is a bit more, um, is going to last a bit longer than, you know, the latest tools and techniques that are used in industry. I think you, you you really go to university to learn some fundamental skills. I, I, so I would like to see more more of the fundamental skills, like how do you structure code? What, if you learn that, that's never going to go away. That's never going to that's never going to get old, and there's not going to be some new trend that's going to stop that being being effective. That that's information and knowledge that's going to last with you throughout your career. So those kind of more fundamental aspects, I think, I think really should should be taught at university. Cool. Um, and then obviously like the data analysis side, if I just, cause you know, that's a flip side of the coin. Everyone wants people to be good at data analysis. Um, and I really appreciate your insights on this cause this is very interesting. Um, 
I've typically seen it like where effectively your data analysis skills are always going to be like highest when you're at university because essentially, typically, a lot of the applied problems, once you encounter an applied problem, all these real world problems, things come up like, uh, you know, your coding and the deployment of it and uh, the data wrangling and things like that. So effectively, all those things get in the way of you applying the most fancy, newest techniques. Um, but do you think that uh, effectively sort of that data analysis and the critical scientific thinking, because I, I view data analysis as a scientific task, as long as mm -hmm. it's being applied to a scientific domain. Um, and there are domains that generate data that aren't scientific, uh, but basically um, should all that and data analysis skill, is that some of the things that you think should be being taught in the universities first? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. These are the fundamental skills that you should, I think you really should be learning this in the university. I think it's quite difficult to learn these skills in industry, actually. Also, I don't think we're really just talking about skills. I think we're talking about a culture. Mm -hmm. you know, scientific culture is about questioning the data and being skeptical. And this is, I just don't think this is something you can learn from you know, from a textbook or even necessarily from, you know, a YouTube tutorial, it's, it's something that you need to, it needs to be imparted to you by someone who, who represents that culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it, it, there is a really strong cultural aspect to this that I think people miss sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not something that, uh, critical read. There's been some debates about whether or not, for example, critical thinking can be taught. And I, I don't believe that critical thinking can be taught like in a course type thing where essentially you lecture people on how to critical think because even the fact is if you take those and apply it, you're not critical thinking you're just mimicking um mm. and i think that there has to be i don't know there's some aspect where it has to be like that dialectic with an experienced skeptical scientific thinker um and then you also have to be basically out on your own doing it you know you have to be able to survive in the wilderness of science and it's learning those survival skills and picking yourself up again when you make mistakes that teaches those skill set, but I I definitely get what you're saying. I mean, like you know, at, at Oxford, the the feeling of you know the scientific community, like that critical thinking, skeptical community, where essentially thoughts can be entertained. You just need to bring up the data and the reasoning to support it. Um, and I, I feel as if there is a big cultural difference there, where you can really feel it. Um, like in the lecture halls and things like that, and then in these conversations and when you move into industry, you know, obviously we've become so focused on getting stuff done that those conversations still happen, uh, but not with the frequency and not with like the intensity that they happen in these academic environments. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, you know, normally when I see a result now, immediately I think the results is false. Yes. I, I think <laughs> that that was probably a bug or, or probably the data hasn't been collected properly or maybe we didn't set the question quite right. Um, I, I, and the, the, there's chances, um, it's much more likely to have something wrong with it than, than actually to be a real result. And that's that's true. I mean, I mean, I've just made so many mistakes in my life and I've believed the data when I shouldn't have so many times. And I've been hurt by that so many <laughs> times that, 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 I, that my, my instinct is to distrust, distrust everything, which is why I really like, you know, I really love stuff like hand labeling my own data um, before, you know, obviously you can't do that at, at a large scale, but but at the beginning, 
I, I do do that because I, th I feel like that's the way for you to really understand the problem and for you to understand what, the, what kind of problems can crop up while you're labeling the data. And then half the time you realize actually the labeling task doesn't actually make any sense um, it, itself. And you need to, you need to change the, the way that you, that you, you're, you're asking the annotators to, to annotate, annotate data, for example. Um, so I think that you really need to be obsessed with those the, the data collection and data analysis questions right from the beginning. Yeah, I think that I, I like your idea. I, I too take the approach that pretty much like anything that I read in a publication, I'm extremely skeptical of. And especially more importantly, any good news that I have from my own results, I'm immediately like, there's no way this is right. It's like, there's <laughs> something in here. There's some special yeah. like demon or gremlin in the machine. Yeah, yeah. So the, it's It's got to be in there. I just haven't found it yet. Like if you have a good result, it just means that you haven't found the bug yet. Um, and as far as like building these systems, like when you say yeah, it's more likely that there's something wrong in there than not. Um, I think this comes back to that issue with like the, the deductive things, because effectively a lot of these data science and machine learning systems are, um, they're highly formal because they're done in a piece of computer code. And you only need one wrong, essentially deduction or one wrong path to send things off in a way that is essentially unpredictable. There's like a chaos in the system. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's why that skepticism is so well warranted. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm 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 glad that other people think similarly because otherwise, I sometimes I wonder if I'm just like too pessimistic about things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, hey everyone, we're in the final stretch of our episode, and before you go, I'd really appreciate if you give me feedback on three things. First, what was your favorite question of the episode? What did I do right? Secondly, what question did you wish that I asked but didn't? And third. What questions were brought up by this conversation that you'd like answered in the future? That's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Um, so I guess I think I think we've talked about some of the issues about practitioners. Um, is there anything that I've missed again so far? Because I, you know, too much, and I need to make sure that like I can't really guess what you what you know that we need to know. Um, is there anything else in this sort of practitioner field? We talked about the the hurdles from going from academia into practice. That should sure be uh, discussed. Um, no, I think we've covered we've covered a lot there. I think um, there are definitely other things which came up in the survey, mm -hmm. um, which were maybe not quite on that point. But but other things like the like I said that the the other the other things that people really cared about were things like open source. Yeah, um, if you don't mind, before because I definitely want to hit on these other points. But um, since we we're on the topic of startups uh, prior to this. Um, is there anything aside from the practitioner who's essentially an employee of a startup, but as the CEO of a company, is there something that you would have wanted to see in this that would have been more useful that isn't covered by the other points? Um, well, I mean, the, one, one thing that actually is covered, you, you know, that, 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 that I care about is, is, uh, the, the immigration, um, immigration policies. So there, there actually is now in the in the new uh, national AI strategy, some liberalization of the visa regime for people with, um, with, with, with um, specific skill sets. So that is welcome news. And that that is something that 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 that, that CEOs generally care about things like being able to hire people. Um, so and we care about that. So being able to to bring people in from from other countries is, is really important to us. Um, yeah. Is it like the, the tier four? Are you talking about the tier four? Uh, is, is it currently under I think tier it's, four? It's, I think it's tier four. Okay. Um, there's, there's, there's a change to make it 
slightly easier to to get the tier four visa, I think. Um, but it's it's uh it's very welcome. Um, the but, but but really something that people struggle with, I think, is access to compute power. You know, when when I talk to other people and other founders of AI startups, it's just access to compute power comes comes pretty high up, up the list. Um, and also academics, you know, for for really really you know these days, if you really want to build a big, big model, then it's very difficult to do that outside one of the large technology companies. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind me just rewinding just like 30 seconds back, um, just to maybe explain this better, uh, for example, the tier four, like, for example, um, universities themselves basically have no problem hiring people from other countries and bringing them in, um, mm. because essentially they have the, essentially they have the bureaucratic infrastructure by which they can essentially go talk to the government, get all those licensing things set up. Whereas for these smaller companies, effectively it's a, unless it's absolutely fundamental to their, uh, like their existence, um, there's a large burden for these small companies in like, no, not only do you have to run your company, but effectively you have to figure out how to manage the bureaucracy to essentially get licensed to potentially hire someone from abroad. Um, yeah, and that, that, that was my understanding of it. Even like, just as a crazy example, and maybe this is a bit too much of an, uh, an insular reference, but like, I think I checked like Angrid Thai, you know, uh, near the Oxford bus station, for example, has like a tier four uh, license. But the technology companies along uh, that were building along uh, Cali and along Main Street, they couldn't afford one because they were too small. And so effectively, yeah. it's like, unless you're hellbent on structuring your company around having this one sort of regulatory hurdle, um, you don't get you don't get that talent. Whereas like a large company, they have that, they have nothing better to do than essentially assign their lawyers and their managers and things to overcoming those hurdles. So effectively, it creates a system, at least as far as I can perceive, where like startups essentially are at a distinct disadvantage compared to these all these other large institutions because they have to jump over these hurdles that it's just one too many. Exactly, it's gonna you 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 need to do a lot of paperwork and you need to hire a lawyer to to do it. It's, a, it's it used to be quite expensive to to do it, and it just takes time. So normally, you, if you want to hire someone quickly, you just don't have time to to you don't have the three months that it will take to, to go through jump through all, all of those hurdles so i so i think that this is going to change so i think this in the in the strategy if i understand it correctly that the, the, the new strategy uh has has a couple of paragraphs in there which say that now that people are going to be able to come into the country with exceptional talents or skills um and they they are not going to be tied to a specific job which means that someone can come into the country and they work in one place, they can leave that place, and then I can hire them um, without having to, you know, be a sponsor, be registered as a sponsor of, of, a, of a visa, etc. And go through all of the, the, the paperwork that you, that you mentioned. Cool. Yeah, I think I think that's important to point out, just because basically, when people talk about what amounts to a hurdle, that definition changes by what institution or what organization you're within. And so effectively, you can see why in academic institutions or giant companies that wouldn't even seem like a hurdle to them that won't register for them because it's not handled or someone who's essentially, you know, in the chaos of a startup, um, it becomes, uh, prohibitive. Um, talking about the other prohibitive thing, computing power. Um, so how does this work out where effectively we have big companies that have access to the type of computing power? Um, some academic institutions either have their own, high performance computing clusters. Um, 
but what would sort of those startups need to see that they can't get on AWS and things like that or Google? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely don't have an answer here. I, I don't, I don't really know what the right answer is. I, I, some people suggest that the government should directly fund credits on cloud computing services like Google and AWS. So you're right that any startup can buy computing time on the cloud, but it's really expensive, especially if you're using GPUs. So it's it, 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 for, for small startups, startups, it's just it's just too expensive. So some people have suggested that we that we fund startups with cloud, you know, credits. Um, I'm not sure that's a great idea actually, because you're basically just transferring money from the UK taxpayer to Google or or Amazon. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that you know that's really what we should be about if we're trying to build up a, an AI industry. And, and you're also, I, I think you're you're teaching people not to, to not be capable of running your own cluster or your own or your own compute infrastructure yourself, which is and then and then we lose those skills in our in our in our um, labour force. I, I don't think that's great either. You know, I've used the phrase learned helplessness about this before that, that, that we're just going to teach people to, to be dependent on Google and Amazon. You know, we care about the UK. This is a UK, is a UK strategy. So um, I, I'm not sure that that's the right approach. I'm not sure what the right approach is. Some other things have been tried. So there is a thing called the, um, I think it's called the machine intelligence garage um, run by the digital catapult, which is gives you, gives startups access for six weeks to uh, a small cluster, I think, or, or or a machine with a few GPUs. Um, I've never used that, that service. We've never used that service because six weeks. I mean, six weeks is just about enough time to discover a major bug in your in your code, I think, and realize that you need to run everything, run everything, run again. it over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah six weeks is just not long enough for for, for my purposes. So I, we've never used that service. Um, Maybe maybe it's useful to some people. I, I'm not really sure, but I, so I don't have an answer. That I don't have a good answer to what to what the government should do, but I do think that it's a problem. I do think that the real at the moment, at least, it does seem like very very large amounts of compute power are the way to to build the the models which have really the you know really really good performance. So some you know something something that it's I think it's holding us back a bit in the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't have a good answer for for what the government should do about that. Yeah, one, and I'm I'm not sure how much of one. I appreciate the sort of like answer when something's up in the air. I love it when people just come on, just like free think about what what the thing might be. Um, but one thing that, like for example, uh, with in the U.S. with U.S. tech salaries, uh, and you look at the cost of computing versus the cost of essentially someone in the the, the actual person in the tech sector, um, and effectively computing is frankly, pretty inexpensive compared to the cost of like hiring a full-blown person. Um, do you think that effectively in countries where effectively like salaries are lower, so you just look around the world, that more and more the computing can essentially become more expensive than the the actual tech worker? Is, is that a thing that, that's interplayed or is it just more of just the upfront cost of computing is? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It could be, this could be something to do something to do with that. And also, I mean, the funding environments is different mm -hmm. in the UK compared to the US. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that has something to do with this, I think. Yeah. Um, but also it's worth saying that it's not just startups. So the very many academics are also saying they don't really have access to the compute power that they need. 
And uh, if you don't mind me asking, is it access to compute power or is it access to compute power plus the computer skill set training? So effectively learning how to use these things effectively. Um, you know, for example, you have somebody who's working on desktop, MATLAB, um, IEM to describe myself during my default, you know, like that doesn't naturally train you to be using like Ubuntu to, you know, spin up some cloud computing resources. Um, so is there the skill gap plus access that is part of the problem? Yeah, I mean, I'm not so much worried about that. I think I think people can learn how to use these tools mm -hmm. and le learn how to use cloud compute. That, that's I don't think that's going to be a major problem. I, I think that something that's going to hold us back as a country is if we just don't have the skills to build very very large, let's say large language models. Mm -hmm. You know, if we if we just don't have the capability, we just don't have the skills for building, uh, you know, large compute clusters with thousands of GPUs in them, um, very, you know, billions of models with billions of parameters. That, that Those are skills that, well, we don't currently have in the UK. And I think that if we if we don't develop those skills, then there, there will be a problem with us catching up or, or staying in the race. Cool. Um, now on to the other, just so we don't lose uh, too much time and we have to cover the rest of uh, what your document talked about. What were the other concerns beyond um, that that were important to address? So um, quite a lot of things. Uh, you know, so, so some things people were directly responding to ideas in the in the in the AI roadmap. So one thing that people really didn't seem to like was the idea of the the moonshots. People were really worried about moonshots becoming very very expensive projects, which were kind of vanity projects and didn't really go anywhere. Um, and it was nice to see actually that the moonshots were no longer in the strategy itself. The strategy document itself do didn't contain anything about moonshots. So yeah, lots of people were talking about that. Um, the, the second biggest thing that, that people cared about after the interface between academia and industry was open source. So support for open source projects and also training for open source technology. That wasn't covered at all in the roadmap, and it was also not covered at all in the strategy. Um, and I think this is a big, this is a big black hole in the strategy. I think um, it's this. Uh, this is the result of not really speaking to any practitioners at all for when, when formulating the strategy. Um, I think I think it's a a missed opportunity. I think that open source has a lot to offer, um, not lot to lot to offer the this this uh, the, you know. Well, What's our goal here? The goal of the strategy is to build the UK AI industry. And I think if open source needs to play a part in that because open source plays a huge part in, in AI um, and it wasn't covered at all. Um, for things like uh, open source, for example, I believe, you know, there's like Columbia has had some pretty good success creating certain Python libraries, you know, via open source and things like that. Um, what do you think, um, is it simply a matter of making sure that academic institutions are openly publishing? So they're publishing their, uh, code along with their publications, that they have these open gits that people can look to and that those gits are of sufficient quality that people can use. Is there anything, those seem sort of like the facile, the sort of first order approximations of what you do. What more specifically would people be needing in terms of open open source? 
So actually, people are much more interested in existing, supporting existing open source projects. Ah, okay. So the the idea is that we would, as a uh, as a state, we would hire individuals to work on open source projects in in the UK, or there would be some funding available in order to do that. Uh, and the idea, many people put put this forward, I mean, they, they, or at least agreed with the idea that that. This is what Columbia did. Columbia did actually. They they hired some core developers for the Scikit-Learn project. Um, so Scikit-Learn is the machine learning that kind of one of the main machine learning libraries for Python in the Python ecosystem. Um, they hired some core developers at Columbia University, and these guys they acted as a kind of nucleus for the machine learning community. They they held workshops. They held tutorials. They did meetups, you know, social networking, um, and they were able to do a lot of knowledge sharing with the local data science community. You know, they're they're working with cutting edge techniques. They're able to share that knowledge. They're able to teach people how to contribute to open source projects, and really, you know, that community building and that cultural aspect was really important and it was really successful. Cool. And um, is um, is is that all that we should have covered for the uh, the open source bit? Because obviously that that is what you just mentioned. Essentially, directly supporting the open source development um, is something that you know we've all benefited from. But you know, as you could just tell from my question, it didn't immediately come to my mind. Uh, was it was there anything else as far as open source that we should be sort of concerned about? Are there facets of open source? Uh, for example, like the open sourcing of education or the open access to learning materials. Is there anything like that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's really that, that, that it, it's really important that code is available mm -hmm. with publications in order that people can reproduce the results. You know, this aspect of open sourcing is really important. It wasn't actually covered in our survey. Not many people really spoke about that. But I think if you care about reproducibility and research, then it's very important that, that people do open source their code. What about uh oh so well, i was just gonna say that i'm not sure whether they necessarily need to open source the code but they need to make the code available which is okay. not quite the same thing yeah yeah um what about uh uh open source data sets were there anything where effectively that there are certain data sets that people would like access to i know in the uk you know you have the uh, uk biobank as an example and that there's a lot of um well-known machine learning sort of reference data sets um were people wanting access to certain aspects of data that they couldn't have previously? Yeah, so there, a few people spoke about this. There was nothing really specific. There weren't people weren't really talking about specific data sets, but they were saying, generally speaking, they would like to have more access to data. Um, that government should try to make more data available. Um, but I, to be honest, I don't think. I, I think the thoughts are quite vague there that, that there needs to be more access to data. So I, I, I don't know whether if you, you know, if you ask a hundred people, hundred data scientists, what they care about, I think probably most of them are going to say they want more data all, all, all the time. But I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a, anything really specific in there about, about open data. Cool. And, um, as far as, uh, the moonshot work goes, cause I know we sort of talked about that for a second. Were there any moonshots? What were some of the examples of these moonshots? I think the main example was a digital twin idea. Okay. That 
Maybe you can explain what this is. <laughs> I was actually going to say, I was actually say like, what were some interesting examples of the moonshots? But if, if digital twins is what they got, it's like, okay, cool. Uh, next question. Uh, but yeah, um, so I guess, I guess for that, I, I, I do, I can't help but really be attracted to the idea of like, well, like, are you going to be funding vanity projects, for example? Sorry, were the moonshots taken out of the strategy? Um, there was nothing about moonshots in the strategy. Okay. Which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. In that case, maybe it's not worth uh, really uh, rummaging over too much. But, you know, there, there are so many elements, especially um, there's so many things that can be open to vanity projects. And you can even consider a lot of academic research where effectively the, um, if it doesn't have a particularly compelling real world case, but it is something that's really catchy. Um, or effectively, you know, you do a publication that looks good from, it might look good. It's like, oh, we can do like certain types of prediction. But then when you look at the data that was used, um, it's like, well, I, I don't really see how you could be drawing these inferences uh, from the data that you have. And then you're saying, well, okay. Then essentially the only thing you've done with the paper is created a headline, but it's not really, it's something that maybe a newspaper might talk about, but it's not something that an actual scientist would take and believe. And I, mm. I, I guess when, when I think of vanity projects, I think that there's like a micro level of vanity projects where effectively you can do things that, create a lot of headlines in your research without actually pushing the field forward. Um, mm -hmm. And so having well, that writ large, go on, sorry. Well, I was just going to say that in this case, probably we're talking about vanity projects for policymakers yeah. so, or, or politicians. You know, politicians love to have some a flagship moonshot project that they can announce or a flagship institute that they can open. But they don't, I don't think many politicians are really excited about supporting an open source project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas like, you know, there's this big disparity between what people in the practitioner community really care about and what policymakers really want to, to push forwards. That's, yeah. I mean, that's being, that's the cynical view. And like I said, the strategy didn't contain anything about moonshots. So, so I think that was, that was a really good outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, on the issue of people creating large institutions, because I just want to bring this up. Um, so obviously we have the Alan Turing uh, Institute. What was, because um, some some of the, one of the most interesting things that I thought, because I obviously respect the Alan Turing Institute greatly. I think they do a lot of cool work. It's very exciting. Um, but at the same time, you know, some of the feedback was saying that like, um, that they didn't think that the Alan Turing Institute was focusing on the most important things. Am I paraphrasing that correctly? Or did I get that entirely wrong? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, people use the term ivory tower. Yeah. Um, that, that that. But there was also quite just a lot of indifference, and hardly anyone actually mentioned the Amateuring Institute. So, you know, it's supposed to be the flagship data science and AI institute in the UK, and yet practitioners, it doesn't seem to have any impact on on practitioners' lives or work. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, I think. Uh, should we care about that? I think we probably should care about that. Um, well, caring about it seems like it would, it being the flagship seems like it would be conditional on people caring about it, presumably, right? You know, because one follows the flagship or at least takes their flags from the flagship, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Like if, yeah. if the flagship isn't waving the flags, it's not the flagship. Um, if, yeah. So. You know, I, I'm thinking about uh, Horatio Nelson now, uh, trying to build that analogy more. <laughs> but yeah, you get the idea. It's like, presumably, its status should be conditional on how it affects people. And perhaps is it having a high effect on people with an academic focus? 
and not having an effect on the practitioners? Is that the divide? I think so. I guess we need to get down to what are what what are the KPIs that the the Alan Turing Institute is being measured on. What 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 what's its goal? How do we know whether it's been successful mm -hmm. um, so far? I don't think it's quite clear what those KPIs are, and I don't think it's quite clear. Everyone says it's very successful, but but by what metrics is it successful? I'm sure lots of papers have been published, but mm -hmm. again, this comes back to this disconnect. This disconnect between industry and academia in the UK, I, I think it's a real thing. It came out in the surveys, but something that, we, that we've, we've seen ourselves in conversations with, with, um, with data scientists. There is this disconnect where we're talking about being world leading and leading the conversation. We, we have the flagship institute, which is very successful, and yet, and, and at the same time, the flagship institute doesn't seem to be affecting the lives or careers of any of the data scientists who are actually out there in industry building products, building services based on machine learning or statistics. Um, maybe you have a good idea about this, maybe you don't. Do you think that the article that you wrote had an effect between the roadmap and the strategy or effectively what you did uh, carried some weight or might've been heard by somebody or changed? I think it's, it's definitely been heard by people. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've had a few quite positive meetings with the AI council and the Office for AI who are, who are running the strategy. This is the UK government department who are, who are running the strategy or producing the strategy. Um, and it, it was definitely read and people took notice. I don't think it had any impact at all on the, on the strategy that really for reasons of timing, the strategy came out very shortly after we published our, our, our piece. Um, and a few, few, few people on the AI council have, have publicly tweeted that, that, they did drop the ball a little bit when it came to open source, and that is something that they they, sh they should have really been looking at, which is great. So we've had some really interesting conversations since then, um, and we are we're, we're hoping to work together in the future to to influence what happens what happens next. You know, we feel like we've got pretty good connections with the practitioner community, so we can bring those two worlds together and get this conversation really started. It's it's a shame that the conversation hasn't hasn't really happened yet. Uh, you know, it's just starting, but I think it's good that, and it's really positive. And to be honest, you know, the Office for AI, AI Council, they've been really, really receptive. So it has been really positive. Yeah. And it also just seems like you're the, it seems like you are part of a community with, um, that has some very exceptional people on it. Like I, I have some bias about this, just given people who I look at and, you know, what I read from them, things like that. But, you know, when I see people like, uh, you and Jim Weatherall, Pierce Dobbs, maybe it's, maybe it's create having those people all together working and thinking about these issues. Um, cause I can't help but get the general impression that you guys, I don't know, maybe have conversations sometimes, um, that it seems like a group of people who can have a good perspective and can actually get things done. Um, again, getting back to that community issue, that sort of vibrant community is, is, do, do, do you think that effectively there is this vibrant community? that is pushing things forward, um, even if it isn't, for example, represented in this roadmap? Well, you, you mean, like, you, you like, mean like around the, the Royal Statistical Society and the yeah. work that, that we're doing? Yeah, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we used to run loads of events in person, mm -hmm. which were really, which were really fun. And we got to meet lots of really, really interesting people. And we were building a, a kind of small community around that. But then the pandemic happened and, and that starts. And we've been doing some online events 
um, mm-hmm. and Piers, you mentioned Piers, Piers, Piers Dobbs, who's writing the newsletter every month as well for for the section, which is really great. I think everyone should definitely check out. I mean, it's fantastic. It is a it is a great newsletter. Actually, one thing that I'd like to do is start doing a running commentary whenever he publishes it. I'll actually publish an episode where I go through and I just like go through and read and highlight some of the key things. Um, because basically it's like once a month, if you want to get an immense update document, um, I'd actually put it on the level of like the batch AI updates, as in things that I like to read just to get a, a, a high level overview. Um, the critical thinking, it's not like a it's not some joke newsletter written by someone trying to get something out. It's like he sat down and provided editorial value. That's great. To a large thing, yes. So I'll I'll pop 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 a link in. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know how he does it to be honest. It's absolutely amazing. But yeah. yeah. So so we're using these tools to 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 connect to people, but we would love to go back to in-person events, of course. Cool. In our last few minutes, um, there's a lot to cover. You know a lot. What is something that I forgot to ask or a topic that I forgot to cover? Um, that's a good good question. I think I think Maybe one thing worth mentioning is that, is that we now, you know, it's 2022 now, uh, as a committee, we, we're, we're trying to figure out what our focus should be for, for this year. We think that it will be this idea about interface between industry and academia we th- because it was such a big, you know, so such a big deal in the, in the survey results coming back. We think we need to try and do something to, to help. We're not sure what we're going to do, but we're coming up with a program of events right now, which will hopefully help to, to, you know, bring people together and build that community that we think is is a little bit lacking at the moment. So um, I don't have anything concrete to say about that, but 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 that's something definitely to look out for. I think that I think it's quite, going to be quite exciting. Cool. And um, on the topic of moonshots, you know, what is what do you think? What do you think it would be a very cool uh, accomplishment for or achievement in your lifetime for AI? Just. Um, would that be a moonshot or do you think that'd be, it's not a moonshot, it's something that's going to happen. What do you think would be a very cool AI achievement in your lifetime? An important one. Well, it'd be nice if the machine learning models learned to generalize to, yeah. to, to, to different data sets. That, that'd be really awesome. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, you know, I think when a lot of the time when you probe into beneath the surface of, of, of some machine learning results, it's, it's just obvious that it, when when the model which performs really well and, and performs better than humans on some task, when you give it some very, very slightly different data set, everything just falls falls apart, doesn't work anymore. Um, this is a real problem. And I, 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 it's a severe problem and it's seen across NLP, computer vision, everywhere. It's a fundamental problem, I think, and it needs to be solved. You know, it seems like humans and even animals more generally have a much more fluid intelligence that, that doesn't have the same kind of brittleness um, and, and that, you know, that's the big problem to be solved, I think. That is very cool. And our final question, um, which I ask everyone is, uh, what is one sort of topic or question that you'd like the AI community to debate? Okay. I, I'm, I'm really interested. Like, I, I really don't want to get away from questions about, you know, a, AGI and human level of intelligence. I would really like to know whether AI currently has reached an insect level of intelligence. That is really funny. That That is a great answer. Um, has AI reached an insect level of intelligence? And with that, Dr. Martin Goodson, CEO of Evolution AI, thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Glenn.
Great to talk to you. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. We won't go totally crazy beyond that. Forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, et cetera, like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employer's views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.